I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but there are, sadly in my estimation, no John the Baptist Christmas tree ornaments. I mentioned this in Tennessee one time, and a woman in our church actually made one for us. So I, I, think, I think Cheryl and I have the world's only John the Baptist Christmas tree ornament. Of course, some clever guy went on Google and told me, no, no, you can find a John the Baptist Christmas tree ornament somewhere on Google. But generally speaking, there are no John the Baptist Christmas tree ornaments. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I suspect most of you don't have one. Now, given all the schmaltzy kitsch, right, the endless array of knickknacks and other trinkets that cluster around the celebration of Christmas, the, the absence of John is, I affirm, a kind of glaring marketing oversight. I think John the Baptist's Christmas ornaments should abound, but markets are not always driven by sound theology. <laughs> now, I know some of you are thinking, what in the world does John the Baptist have to do with Christmas? And that is the question, isn't it? That's why there are no John the Baptist Christmas ornaments. Well, this text this morning, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is the first installment of a two-part answer to that question. We could subtitle it, The Case for the John the Baptist Christmas Ornament. I want to make four points this morning. They're there on your insert. First, John the Baptist and Christmas. Second, the word in history. The word in history. And third, the ministry of John the Baptist. The ministry of John the Baptist. And fourth, the conclusion. So John the Baptist and Christmas, the word in history, the ministry of John the Baptist and the conclusion. So we start with John the Baptist and Christmas. And so what we want to do is cement in our minds the necessity of John in the Christmas story. And to do that, we have to go back to what we saw last week. We saw that the Advent season is about the coming of the Lord and all of its implications, including the nations beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And thus we celebrate the salvation that Christ brings and we anticipate and we prepare for His coming again. We do both things at Advent. Remember, from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets looking forward, the first and second comings of Christ are linked together. They're viewed as one giant decisive event. The second coming of Christ is set in motion by the kingdom which has come in the first advent. And you know, one of the consequences of this, and you see it every year at this time in the church calendar, is that the advent readings deal with both appearances of the Lord, the first coming and the second coming. The readings in your bulletin today, right? we don't make those up, right? Those come from the church's tradition. They've been used for many, many centuries, and it just so happens that the church, in her wisdom, 
has included readings on John the Baptist and his ministry and placed them right here in the Advent season, including our text this morning from Luke chapter 3. Now, if we ask, why, why is this so? Again, when those Old Testament prophets looked forward and they saw that one great event of the Messiah coming in his kingdom, they saw someone in front of that. They saw that there was one who came before the Messiah. That there was another figure sent before the face of Christ to prepare his way. You know, Luke makes this very clear in the very structure of the way he does his gospel. Luke tells you the birth narrative of John the Baptist. Then he tells you Jesus' birth. The next thing he does is he moves to the ministry of John the Baptist. Then he goes to the ministry of Jesus. And so, yes, the text this morning is 30 years after what you normally think of as Christmas. But Luke makes it clear that theologically, the coming of John and his work has to be grasped so that we can grasp the mystery of Jesus Christ properly. And that's why John's in the story. He comes before the Messiah to prepare you to embrace him. So we'll look at John's role. Second point, then, is the word in history. So what does Luke do? Now, now here we're going to turn to the text proper in Luke chapter 3. Luke's a physician. He's also an able historian. And his historical uh, accuracy has been remarkably confirmed and verified. He begins his text by detailing the political and the religious leadership under which the Jews lived. And by doing this, Luke really narrows in. He gives us a fairly precise time frame for the onset of John the Baptist's public ministry. All of this he sets forth in verse 1 with a kind of stately majesty. We're, we're now in the time of Tiberius, he says. He's the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate is an underling of Tiberius. He rules over Judea in the south. And Herod and Philip and Lysanias, they're tetrarchs, which are really petty princes. And they jointly ruled over the northern regions of Israel and the regions just to the north and east of Israel. So that's the overall political situation. Now, if you couple this with what Luke tells you at the beginning of verse 2, he says that there are two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. What we end up with is a date between 27 and 29 A.D. We can be that precise, depending exactly on how you do some of these things, with the time that Luke's talking about. 27 to 29 A.D. He gives us enough information. He's told us who the emperor is. He's told us who all the sub-rulers you know, sub under the emperor are. He he's told us who the high priests are. And it's in 27 or so A.D. that the event described in verse 2 occurs. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert or in the wilderness. I love this passage. Uh, Luke is doing a number of very important things here. Very important. 
First, notice this. The Word of God appears in John the Baptist's ministry. The Word of God comes to John in the desert. But it comes at a specific, concrete place and time in world history. It comes in the Roman Empire, under this emperor, under this subset of political rulers, under these high priests at this time in Israel's history, at this precise moment. So the gospel then is no myth. It's not just an ideology. We don't, we don't celebrate the Christmas story because we like it, because it warms our hearts, because we find it charming. Or even because it brings us psychological comfort. If it didn't occur in space and time, then away with it. Away with it. Go home, read the New York Times. It's not a mere set of propositions. The man John and the man Jesus have a historical, political context. They have a long prehistory. They have DNA. They have ancestors. They cannot be Scandinavian. They're embedded in this long history of Israel. They appear at this time and in this specific configuration of religious and political authorities. We are as far away from what was common in the ancient world, that is the world of mythology. We are as far away from that as you can be with Luke's account. Luke is a physician and he's a historian. He takes history with dead seriousness, as should we, because God has acted and he has finally appeared in it. This is why history is such a grand thing. <coughs> That's the first thing Luke's doing, but when he delineates, when he tells you who the emperor is and all, all his underlings who are ruling over Israel, he's reminding us that this is a time of foreign oppression for the covenant people, for Israel, in their own land. They are lying or mourning in lonely exile, as the hymn puts it. And when he mentions both Annas and Caiaphas as high priests, he seems to be implying religious corruption and confusion as well, because we know that Israel was to have only one high priest at a time. There's no provision in Israel for two simultaneous high priests. And then we finally get to John. And where's he? He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness, outside of the established religious institutions. This also indicates probably Israel's degradation. The prophetic voice of God to the people has to come from the margins of society, outside the mainstream, out in the place of wilderness, the place of exile out on the ground which was cursed and which Christ will bring his blessing to extend far as the curse is found. Notice Luke names both here Roman leaders and Jewish leaders. And so he's again hinting, setting us up for the fact that the gospel which John the Baptist is to prepare us to receive is a gospel for all people, 
Jew and Gentile, priests, kings, Romans, Israelites. And in addition, surely the text is meant to highlight the sovereign freedom of the Word of God. That word which Martin Luther says is above all earthly powers and no thanks to them abideth. Notice this contrast in the text. All of this pomp, all of these titles, all of this political power, and then underneath them all of their petty little divided jurisdiction. And then, then, the, then the, uh, the grandeur of the religious priesthood. All of that is unceremoniously bypassed by the sovereign God and the word of God comes to a guy named John. A guy named John. Oh yeah, and if you want to know what his title is, he's the son of Zechariah. And this phrase, the word of God came to John, marks him out as a prophet. So John stands out here after hundreds of years of silence as the last Old Testament prophet. John is the last Old Testament prophet. In him, the line of the prophets is revived because he is the one who Malachi tells us is going to come before the great and the dreadful day of the Lord. And that brings us to his ministry proper, John, the ministry of John the Baptist. And you can see that beginning in verse 3. We're told the actual content of his ministry. He went into all the country around the Jordan, for he preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. It's an odd thing, this baptism of John and the church and Christian people have always had a hard time making sense of it and sorting it out. Notice the prominence of it, though, in the Gospels. Do you realize that very early in all four Gospels, Jesus undergoes this very baptism? And in Mark's Gospel, we're told that repentant people came to John, they confessed their sins. And then they were baptized by him. One thing John's ministry tells us, among others, is that baptism without repentance and confession is vain. John baptized, to be sure, but it's a baptism of repentance. And the people came confessing their sins. But John's a scandalous figure. At, at, at this time in Israel's history, if you were a convert to Judaism, a proselyte, you would be expected to undergo a cleansing rite as a Gentile to convert. You would have to remove your defilement. Gentiles were unclean and they would be washed. So in that sense, the Jews were familiar with these kinds of baptisms. But what's shocking here is that John does not call the Gentiles. He expects his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, to undergo this rite. He says to them, you're unclean, you need to be washed. Again, this would be a stinging indictment on Israel for their covenant breaking. I mean, to call the Gentiles to repentance and cleansing is one thing. But to be a Jewish prophet and expect the Jews to be washed, that was scandalous. So John's a jarring figure. It's important for us to get that. First of all, in his message, but as you know, in his demeanor, right? He's a strange-looking guy. Even given the, you know, the context of the time, 
the hairy garments. You know, the diet. Locusts and wild honey. His austere lifestyle. His ruthless single-mindedness. This guy has one and only one mention, uh, message. That's all he has. He has one message. One scholar said, John the Baptist preached the same sermon every single day. It's the only thing about him I envy, <laughs> is that. It really cuts your preparation time down. He preached the same sermon every single day. And to those kind of resting and content in their religious complacency, he would have appeared as a madman. Really a crazed human being. He's a living accusation against Israel. And true to the long succession of prophets, he's against the people for the sake of the people. Sometimes that's the only way you can love the people. He's against the people for the sake of the people. It's a terrible, holy calling he had. And everything about him is designed to awaken slumbering people because of the momentous nature of what's about to transpire. And so the, the, uh, his whole ministry is summarized in the quotation in your text there, which is from Isaiah 40, which was the Old Testament lesson today, and which was beautifully sung as well. Notice in that text from Isaiah 40 there, I'm going to make four sub-points here quickly. Um, I want to look at, it tells us who John is, what he must do, who he must do it for, and what shall be accomplished. Look at verse 4. We see that John is the voice. This is who he was. He's the voice of one calling in the desert. Now when the Jews asked him who he was, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the desert. He's simply the voice. He's the mouthpiece of God. Not only did he only have one sermon, the whole man was that sermon. John's points, Karl Barth, the German-Swiss theologian, used to love this image of the finger of John the Baptist, was his favorite religious image for the gospel. Because what John, John the Baptist had one function. He points to Christ. He's the word or the voice of the eternal word. He's the light that points to the light of the world. His whole ministry can be summed up in his finger. He's a pointer. What does he do? The text says he's to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Here I think this is... Um, it's somewhat difficult for us to crisply grasp what this means. We have some vague sense that we're to be prepared, but what does this language mean? It's borrowed from the practice in the ancient world where a town would send out emissaries to meet a visiting king. A king would be coming, or a dignitary would be coming, and you would send people out to meet them. And in our modern Parlance, they would, if you will, roll out the red carpet for them and make sure their arrival at the town was smooth and safe. And if you were on this sort of advanced team in the ancient world, this would entail removing boulders and rerouting roads if necessary. 
generally clearing the path that the dignitary, the king who was visiting, would have to tread. This is concrete language. It was well known. It's a job similar to the president's secret service and advanced planning team prepping a route into a city where he's going to speak. And it could be very difficult work in the ancient world. And now remember, the text comes from the prophet Isaiah. And so in Isaiah's context, originally it refers to Israel's route across the Syrian desert back to Palestine after their exile in Babylon. Israel's in Babylon when Isaiah speaks. Or, or Isaiah speaks of the time when Israel's in Babylon. And they're to come back to Israel. And what has to happen is they're going to have to trek across a desert. So here, of course, it's spoken of John's ministry metaphorically about the need for Israel to be recreated. It's as if Israel is now a wilderness that needs to be made habitable. And so now the heart of Israel has to be ready for the coming king. The crooked perversity of the human heart and mind have to be straightened out. And all the obstacles that hinder our reception of the king have to be removed. The valleys of despair and hopelessness and sloth are to be lifted up. That the hills of our pride and self-righteousness are to be leveled. Our twistedness has to be straightened out. Our roughness has to be replaced with gentleness and love. This is why the Advent season is a kind of Lenten, Lenten season. Because we are preparing for the same arrival of the king who has already arrived and is about to arrive again in his second advent. It's a joyous season to be sure. But it's a season in which God is seeking to reorder your interior world. Repent for the kingdom of heaven as at hand is an advent proclamation. Third, who is John doing this for? I mean, he's a messenger. Obviously, in one sense, he does it for Israel. But he's doing it, he's preparing the way of the Lord. He does this for Jesus. And yet there's a momentous point that can be seen here. The Lord, in the Isaiah text in verse 4, is Yahweh himself, the God of Israel. Here in our text, the Lord is Jesus Christ. When... When Luke takes this text from Isaiah 40 and he applies it to Jesus, he's saying that Jesus is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this brings us to the central mystery of Advent. It's all very charming, Advent. It's delightful. But if that baby is not the second person of the Trinity, well, then it's just a Hallmark movie, isn't it? The central mystery is that the baby is the Lord God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one who descends. He prepares the way of the Lord, the God of Israel, who is now identified with the Christ. Fourth, notice in the text, John's mission shall be accomplished. The text says, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked road shall become straight. Rough ways shall be smooth. This is the language of divine accomplishment. The topography 
of Israel's inner life and the topography of your heart and mind are to be reordered by Advent, and God shall accomplish this. Think of how unlikely this appeared in John's lifetime. I mean, it seemed ridiculous. He spends his whole life preparing for the ministry or the coming of another. He's arrested. He's imprisoned by a petty tyrant. And then he's executed on the whim of a child and her adulterous mother. And before that, he's sitting in prison and he's wondering in dark despair whether Jesus really is the coming one or not. We can relate to this, I think, right? It's pretty easy to think Jesus is the coming one here in this assembly. But by Tuesday morning, half of us will have doubts. So John had those doubts. The John of this message. The John of Isaiah 40. You know, people flocked to his ministry. In the end, the vast majority of his countrymen rejected him. And subsequently, vast swaths of the church have just excised him from the Christmas story. Right? I mean, you don't have a John the Baptist Christmas ornament. (laughs) You know, sometimes we can feel this way, Advent to Advent. What's different from the last Advent? It seems like the world just goes on pretty much the same. But notice what's important in this text that Isaiah prophesied it and John came to fulfill it and pointed to Christ and said, these things shall be accomplished. And in fact, they were in John's ministry. Right? Despite the nation's rejection of him, enough of a remnant of Jews were moved by John and they were prepared to receive Jesus as king and they formed the nucleus of the church, the renewed Israel of God. The word of the Lord was accomplished in John the Baptist's ministry. So let me conclude. The reason why John's important in the Christmas story is he reminds us that the sweetness and the joy of Christmas does not come without the purifying fires of repentance and judgment. Christmas is a day of international crisis because it brings the second coming. It sets the second coming in motion. The advent of Christ now means we stand under the end. We stand under the end. And if we're to receive the coming king... We too, like Israel, must have our hearts prepared, our interior lives reordered by the grace of God. This is the wonder of Advent for us pastorally as a people. It's an opportunity to remember that God seeks to renew us, to transform us, to transfigure us, to reshape us. Right? That we don't have to perpetually uh, be stagnant spiritually or circle or endlessly zig and zag, that valleys can be lifted up and mountains can be lowered and twisted things can be straightened out and rough things can be smoothed out. God knows we could all use a few rough edges knocked off of us. That's what the Spirit does by the purifying fires of the gospel. And for this duty, 
and this privilege, you have the ministry of John the Baptist to thank. It's true, you're not Israel preparing for the first coming, but you are the Israel of God getting ready for the second coming. So get yourself a John the Baptist Christmas ornament. <laughs> Let us be a people who are repentant, purified, and purged, ready to receive Christ and his fullness. And let us be a people who give thanks to God for the ministry of John, the forerunner. Amen.